What is the path to being a millionaire? The answer is make more money than you spend. The wise words of Angela. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Write it down, people. So I gave him some amount of money, 10 grand or something. He immediately skipped town, went on a drug bender, never turned in the work. The money was gone. This is, I'm going to give you the sad news here. About 27% of people who buy a book actually read it. I'm going on a safari with Richard Branson in November to his safari park. Yeah, me too. And Are you really? No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, you should come. It's going to be amazing. So my name is Dr. Angela Loria, and I am the author incubator. I help experts life coaches and consultants get their books written and published and promoted so they can make the difference they were born to make. And we are located in the Washington, D.C. area. And I live at my home, which is also affectionately known as the Author Castle. We are right on the Potomac River, and I welcome our authors into our home to celebrate their book publishing. We help them to get their books published and promoted, and then we have lots of great parties here at the castle to celebrate their accomplishments. How did you end up getting into this? My professor, when I was a senior in college, one of my professors recommended me for a job with a New York Times bestselling author as a researcher and an editor. And I thought I would do that temporarily while I was applying for jobs. I actually started working there right around spring break of my senior year. And I've been working on books ever since. I always thought I would be an investigative reporter and just haven't quite made it there yet. (laughs) So yeah, I sort of, I was a journalism major, did a master's degree in communications and a PhD in communications. And I've always been working with books and with authors to help them make an impact. Tell us a little bit more about your company, someone who has no idea what the author incubator is all about. I think there are lots of book coaches out there. There are lots of editors out there. There are lots of publishers and self-publishing services. And we sort of combine that all in one place, but with a direct marketing approach, with a direct response approach. Mostly where my expertise is, is using a book to generate leads for a coaching or consulting business. So when people come to us, they have an idea for a book, they have an area of expertise that they've been working in, they have clients and case studies, but they want to grow their business, get more clients, and have a more regular and steady flow of leads and a more repeatable and predictable business revenue. So usually we can add about a quarter of a million dollars in revenue from a book within a year. And so we kind of start with that goal. How can we add $250,000 to your bottom line by putting a book into your marketing mix? So can we use me as a case study? Sure. I'd love to. Let's say I have a commercial real estate brokerage company. And do I just decide in my head that, hey, I think I should have a Kindle book uh, published and I come to you? Or how does this usually work out? Yeah. So we don't just do Kindle books. We do print paperbacks, hardcover books, eBooks. I mean, it doesn't matter really. The idea is that you have a concept, not necessarily for what your book is about or what goes on every page, but just that you know by having a book and having the authority that being an author brings is going to help grow your book. And we help you to architect that book so that it's going to attract more of your ideal clients into your business. 
So that's really where we start with everybody. If the book is already written, most people, honestly, most people write the wrong book, so we can't really help them. It's really architecting and engineering your book to get the result that you want. So with your commercial real estate stuff, I would say, what do you need more of? Do you need more investors? Do you need more listings? Like, What is the goal that having a book that you would look back and say, oh, writing that book was the best thing I did because this happened? And so then we reverse engineer how we need the book written to get that outcome. Let's just say, for instance, if I wanted to keep doing commercial real estate with my old commercial real estate company, which I still have it active, but if I wanted to write a book, maybe I think the ideal reason I would want to write it is to attract more clients so I could close more deals if I wanted to keep doing down that route. I think it would be, I guess, geared towards showing that I have knowledge of the financing end of commercial real estate transactions. So that way I end up having, I guess, maybe authority so you could get more owners and close more deals. You're probably wrong about that. So let me actually just work with you on it. I know you're probably not doing this business right now, but I'll tell you how we would approach it. Usually anything an expert wants to share is all the wrong stuff. And the reason that's true is you forget where your ideal client was before they heard of you. Like you've done so many of these deals, you know what's important is financing, whatever you just said, but I bet your ideal client doesn't know that. So before they come to you, what's the problem that they think they have? Like is the problem they don't know about the good deals? Is the problem they don't know if they're getting the right return on investment? Like what do they think in their words is the problem? Well, I think that really at the end of the day, they probably just want to get the best loan closed for themselves. There's not a lot of information out on the internet they can like look up finding out about these transactions. Maybe if they're 10 years younger or 20 years younger, maybe they're trying to buy their first deal right now and they just don't even know how to go about like finding some of the lenders that do lend on commercial real estate is my thought process, but that might be wrong. So I bet you're wrong. So the ideal client who's doing their first deal, do you want a whole bunch of people doing their first deal? Like, is that your zone of excellence? Oh, is, no, I'd rather have them. You yeah, know. fuck those guys, right? I mean, it's like, oh, I got to fucking educate you. I'm going to spend an hour. Am I allowed to swear? I'm going to accidentally swear it happens. No, it's required. Okay, good. So like those guys are going to have a million questions. Just doing a deal is going to take you so much longer. So that's not your ideal client. That's a pain in the ass client you could make some money off of. But let's not write a book that's going to set you up to have pain in the ass clients. So who is like the guy, I say guy, could be a girl, but who is like your favorite client of all time? You did 10 deals together. Half of them took a half an hour. It was totally effortless. Like, tell me about that person. There's a few that repeat clients, but most of them, they're older white guys that are in New York, I would say, that own different types of shopping centers around the country because it doesn't matter. You don't have to stay in a certain area with the financing in. Right. So it's really just usually kind of getting in with one deal. And if you get them good with one lender and you do a good job, then they'll keep using you till basically, yeah, you fuck up. And then they're like, they'll go get another broker. Right. So okay. that, that's, that's cool. Kind of so let's talk about that guy. So give me a name. It doesn't have to be a real name, but yeah. uh, John Smith. Okay. So let's talk about John. So John's already done a couple of shopping malls, not with you like strip malls or something like that, that he's done not with you. And now you want to convince him, Hey, your lender fucked up. A deal went sideways, but you know you still want to do these deals. What is he worried about? What is he thinking about? 
that's making him hesitate about, do I switch to you? Like, do I go to another guy? Do I take another angle? Like, what's he thinking? He wants to make sure if I bring him a loan sheet, that it's not BS, that you can actually get a loan close with them. Because I think most of the owners are just skeptical because when they go up to brokers that hey, they come with the best term sheet. But at the end of the day, do they really know me? Yeah. And then you're like three months into the deal and all of a sudden now the terms change. Yeah, I've had that happen. So here's your book concept. Your book concept is the no BS term sheet. How do you know you're not going to get hosed? Like their problem is I'm going to end up wasting a ton of time on this deal and I'm going to end up having to pay more than I thought I was going to have to pay. That's the problem we want the book to solve. Because the guy with that problem this is, I'm going to give you the sad news here. About 27% of people who buy a book actually read it. <laughs> so we don't even give a shit if John reads the book. We want the problem on the cover and in the description of your book to be like exactly where your ideal client is. So if the book still has to be good. He's got to be able to skim through the table of contents and read a couple pages and know you know what you're talking about, which you clearly do, because it sounds like you've been through this rodeo a few times. And then we want him to call you. We want to make it really easy for him to reach out, call you, email, contact you, whatever, and be like, hey, you totally get where I am and what this problem is. Can you help me solve it? And of course, you're the perfect guy to help him solve it because you wrote the book on it. You came up on the fly with that title. It's pretty good. Yeah. You've, so you've done this before, you're saying. Yeah. That's the whole trick is like, it's not figuring out what you could write about or who you could help. It's figuring out who do you want to help? Who's in the bullseye? And like, here's my crazy hard sell for you is my goal is let's sell less books. Everyone out there is talking about selling more books. I don't want to sell more books to a bunch of motherfuckers I don't want to work with. I want to sell a very few books with a very high conversion rate of people who find the book, buy the book, track me down and beg me to take them as a client because they know I know the answer to their problem. Then all my clients are amazing. They're hungry. They're ready to go. And they know I can solve their most urgent problem. And they're the people I want to work with. That sounds perfect. So what would be the next steps? I don't know if this would be like a normal first call, but where would we go from here? Yeah. So once we actually figure out what's the way I describe this is what's your ideal reader's problems? What's your ideal reader's problem in one sentence with no commas in their words? That's where we start. Once we have that answered, then we can move on to all of the marketing for the book, which is the cover, the title, the flap copy. And we use all of that marketing to go get you some clients before you even write a word. So I call this market validation and it's based on the concepts in Eric Reese's book, The Lean Startup. And we want to put an MVP out there before you write a book. So an MVP is a minimum viable product. Usually for our clients, an MVP is a webinar or a class or a video series or some sort of training that has the same content that's going to be in your book that we want to test out. So I want to test your content by taking all of the marketing for your book and say, hey, I'm working on my book and I'm putting together a free training. If you know someone who would be a fit for this, let me know. You can register here. We want to get 100 people signed up for that free training. And out of those 100 people, because if we can't find 100 people now who will come to your free training, we're not going to find 100 people who will buy your book. So we want to find them now. And of those 100 people, we should get at least two clients. If we're killing it, we'll get 10. 
So for most of my authors, I expect them to make at least 10K before they write a word of their book. So generally our, and in your case, you might not make that money, but you'll know if you sign two clients, even if it takes us, you know, 90 days to close the deal, here's how much you're likely to make from those two clients. So at a closing, you're going to make 10K per person. That's 20K. We already know that 20K is coming. I want that money in your bank account, ideally. If you're a coach or a consultant, we can get those payments up front before you write a word of your book. Then when you do that webinar, we're going to get the transcript and that's going to be the starting point for how we're going to outline your book and work on actually writing it. And we can tell from the questions that came in, the feedback, the number of people that show up based on the number of people that register. We can figure out, hey, what's the content here that really resonated with people? And then we're going to outline the book based on what we know is really attracting your ideal reader. So we've already made money before we write a word. And now when we're writing the content, it's being driven by the ideal readers that are already generating revenue from your book. Now, this might sound hard, but I'll tell you that we've had over 400 authors come through our program, I think 421 now in the last three years, and they write their books in anywhere between three days and nine weeks, and we've never had anyone not finish. So this whole thing, you can have clients, revenue, and a book in a couple of months. It's not that hard as long as you're already an expert in this area. I can't give you, I don't know how long you did commercial real estate, but let's say it was five to 10 years. I can't give you five to 10 years of experience and stories and you know work in the trenches, but actually writing your book only takes 24 to 48 hours. When you're talking about a thing you are already an expert in, we're really just capturing your expertise in a way that attracts your ideal clients. I think that makes sense. No matter what industry someone's coming from, hopefully they have to be at least an expert first for you to make sure that they'll be an ideal client for yourself. Yeah. So we actually, we get about 5,000 applications. Oh God, we get more than that. Now we're getting about 200 a week. So we must be up to over 10,000 applications a year, but yeah, we get about 200 applications a week. And of those 200 applications that we're getting, we only make offers to fewer than 10% of them. And then we are working with like the best of the best of the people that apply. Cause honestly, like writing a book isn't hard when you have, I've been, I was a ghostwriter for 17 years. I've been doing this for a long time. Writing a book isn't the hard part, but making sure you're actually an expert and you have a body of knowledge that we can capture. That's really key to the book being a success. So with Patreon, I heard it many times cause you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? Does it sound like a lot of people are not experts who are trying to get a book written then? Yeah, a lot of people actually just want to write a catharsis book. And some people really care about craft, which I'm a big fan of. Like craft is great. 
So if you want to be like a creative writer, like somebody might want to go to pottery class and somebody might want to take golfing lessons and somebody might want to write as a way of personal self-expression, I think that's fantastic. I'm sure plenty of great people to work with. I'm not that person. I can tell you how to make a quarter of a million dollars from a book in a year. Like that's what I do. So it has to be written well. There's a minimum standard, but it's much more important that the knowledge going into it is based on experience. So I get a lot of people who either want to be creative writers and they enjoy the art of writing, which is great. And then I get a lot of people who are going through something right now that's a big personal challenge. Like they just had a baby and they're learning how to be a parent or They are in the middle of a divorce and they think divorces should be nicer. If you're in the middle of a crisis, you know, you're, this is a thing that's going on right now. Like your kid was involved in a school shooting and you want to stop school shootings. If you're right in the middle of it and you're not an expert, I'm not the best person for you to work with. That's a little bit of therapy and that's great. Writing is a great way to process stuff that you're going through in your life. But that doesn't mean people should hire you to help them solve the problem. When someone comes to you, are they usually referred from a client? How do they find out about you and how much does actually end up costing to go through this process with you? How do people find me? Yeah. Well, it's not going to surprise you to know they find me from my book. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Huzzah. So one of my favorite direct response marketing tools is using a free book. You've probably heard of the concept of a free book funnel. Sometimes it's free with shipping. Sometimes you get the PDF for free, but we tend to use advertising in Google, Facebook, YouTube, offering our free book to people who are looking to write a book that makes a difference. Once they download our book, and I think we've given away about 10,000 copies of our book. Once they download it, we invite them to a free class. The free class is called How to Write a Book That Gets Clients Begging to Work With You. I have several books, but the book that we have our most successful free book funnel is called The Difference, 10 Steps to Writing a Book That Matters. And then the class is like, hey, once you have your book, how are you going to use it to grow your business? Then we share with them case studies and some of our other experience and short trainings on other techniques that you can use to get clients from your book or to get your book written more quickly or how to come up with a title that's going to attract the right leads. And we do a lot of education in the funnel. We tend to send about 12 emails in about two weeks. That's our indoctrination sequence. And for the most part, if people haven't applied to work with us in those first couple weeks, they're not going to be a fit for us. And then we take them through a pretty rigorous application process to make sure they have case studies, they have expertise. We want to know that we can get them a 10x return on their investment. I want them to have their money back before they write a word of their book. So our goal is to get them between ten dollars and $20,000 of revenue in the first four weeks of working together. And to do that, they really do have to already be an expert, have some clients, have some things going for them. So if we know that we can get them the success that they're looking for, which is generally, like I said, a quarter of a million dollars within a year from their book, then we'll invite them to work with us. There's probably three, three levels of interviews that they have to go through and a pretty extensive application. And once we're sure we can get them the result, then we extend them the offer. 
And so what do those offers look like? I imagine that some people might think it's high, but based on what you've already said, I guess I got to hear how much it would cost to get the fee done. But if you're already going to have, especially if you're a business coach, for example, and you can get that money up front before you even get it done, it seems like it'd be worth it. Yeah, that's why we need them to outline their program for us. We need to understand what they're selling and make sure that they can get that. So like, I want to share with you an exact price because our prices definitely change and it depends on what the offer is, but I can tell you it's between ten dollars and $20,000 because we're looking to make sure they can make ten dollars to $20,000 in the first four weeks and then a quarter of a million dollars within a year. So we're looking for that at least a 10x return on investment. And that means they have to solve a problem that is going to be worth at least $1,000 to their ideal client to solve. So I can pretty consistently generate enough leads from a book and through the system that we use to get 10 clients a month at $1,000. It could be four clients a month at $2,500, but pretty much right off the bat, I need to know that I can generate 10K from our system. And so if you're selling something for $97, we either need to think about how can you add some personal coaching? How can you add some consulting to make that at least a thousand dollar offer? Or it's just not going to be a fit to work together. That's why we have, we have talent scouts that are going to interview our prospects based on both their writing skills, their commitment to their mission, what we call their servant's heart. So how committed they are to actually helping people. But then we also have to look at it from a marketing perspective and a business perspective. And most people come to us and they don't have a clearly defined offer. And so we are working with them to make sure that we can quickly define that offer. So for instance, if people come to us and they're doing one-on-one sessions and they're charging $150 an hour or $100 an hour or $200 an hour, I'll give you an example. One of our books is by a woman named Pam Pryor. Her book, it's now called Your First CFO. When she came to us, she was charging, I think it was like $250 an hour to do financial consulting with businesses in the logistics industry, in the trucking industry, in the food processing industry, and really helping them define their financial strategy. And she's kind of charging $250 an hour. We were able to spend an hour on the phone and craft a package where an entrepreneur could get a forecast model built and someone on their team trained to update that forecast model with actuals monthly. And that's something like a 5K package. And it takes, I think, like eight weeks to go through all of their financials, what they've been doing, where they're going. It's multiple conversations with multiple people on the team. And at the end of eight weeks, you've got this forecast model and someone on your team trained to use it. So because we were able to craft that together really quickly, we knew we could get her two clients a month right off the bat, getting to that 10K mark. And then we can pretty quickly take it from 10K to 30K with follow-on offers. Yeah. And this seems like it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's really business to business versus trying to do a business to consumer type sale, it sounds like. I'm just wondering how you even got into this. If I looked at what you started about seven years ago, eight years ago? So no, I actually, I mean, I started in the publishing industry in March of 1994, and then I started the author incubator in February of 2013. And the way that it happened was I never had a website. I never had any sort of marketing. I just, from that very first job I did for New York Times bestselling author, David Wise, 
I just kept getting referred to my next client, my next client. And eventually I started working in the software industry and I was doing technology books and running an inside sales team. So generally I would ghostwrite the book and then we would take that book and put it into a free book funnel. That free book funnel would generate leads. And then I had a team of inside sales guys that would call those leads and set up appointments. They were our appointment centers. I think they got, they had to do a hundred dials a day and 10 connects and they had to set at least four appointments a week and they got paid based on the appointments they set. And then they'd get a kicker if those deals closed. So I was doing about 10, $20 million in software sales with my inside sales team and with the free book funnel process. And they were good books. I mean, I really focused on Windows Server Backup. And I think everybody should back up their Windows servers. I'm all in. And it was a $10,000 price point for the software and services that we sold, which was great. What I realized was my life's work was not to get people's Windows servers backed up. Not that I don't think people should back up their Windows servers, but I was just personally very passionate about wellness and personal growth and business. And I had my own topics that I was interested in. And it was just pretty mind numbing to spend my days talking about mobile virtual network operating platforms and robust, seamless end-to-end -end enterprise solutions. And I just made a decision back in 2013 that I was going to focus all of my effort and energy on books that I was personally passionate about and that I would read. And so that's what the 421 titles that we have produced since starting the company have been all about. So wellness, relationships, like any sort of personal growth, self-care, chronic illnesses, and then also just because I'm into business and marketing, lots of business and marketing tools. And so I take all those skills that I learned to sell software and I use it to sell coaching and consulting on topics that I'm passionate about and that I think are making the world a better place. Tell us about that transition because you were working with a bigger company. You were a marketing officer and I guess you had a, been a freelancer. So you got a feel of what entrepreneurship kind of was. But when you started the Author Incubator, that was by yourself, right? Starting your own company? Yeah. So I never thought of myself as an entrepreneur, but in 1994, when I got that first job, I was on a 1099. I made $10 an hour. And I sort of continued working on 1099s, helping people with their books from 1994 until 2013. So about 19 years that I was primarily working as a contractor freelancer doing this book thing where I would help individuals and businesses get their books written and then get it marketed, get it published. I worked with traditional publishers, but I also did what was called vanity publishing back in the day. We now call it self-publishing. Um, so I'd worked on all aspects of publicity, interviewing, fact-checking, researching, ghostwriting. I ghostwrote like 26 different books, mostly in the areas of politics and technology. Those were sort of my specialties. But occasionally I would get, you know, another book on another topic and I'd do it. I did a, I did a book with a guy who was in the witness protection program, a mafia guy. People just find me everywhere and I would go do books for them and then figure out what their marketing strategy would be for the book. When I started the author incubator, that was the first time I ever felt like an entrepreneur where I like 
created a website and oh, it was the first time I'd actually even gotten like an LLC. I had just been doing it as a sole proprietor for all those years. And I was really looking for what was I going to do when I grew up? Like I thought this book stuff was like a temporary thing I was going to do until I figured out what my career would be. Did you quit your old job before you started the author incubator? I just want to make sure we understand what that transition was like financially and you personally. Yeah. So the last book that I did with a corporate client was called Bankrupt at Birth, and it was an identity theft book. It still is an identity theft book. I transitioned from being full-time with that company to being part-time over the first six months. I started the company in February, and I think I had left, I want to say it was in June. It might have been July. So from January to June, I was part-time. Yeah, it was January to June, I was part-time. And then by the end of June, I had left corporate. But I will say from February when we opened the doors until June when I left my company, I didn't make any money at the Author Incubator. The first time I started making money was in September. And I think that's because I had a paycheck coming through and I freaked out in July completely because I had no more money coming in and I couldn't pay my bills and my credit cards were completely maxed out. And I was like, I have to figure out something. And when I started my company, I just thought I would put up a website and people would go there and buy shit from me. And they did not do that. What happened from there? In July, I freaked out and started interviewing for jobs. And I decided I couldn't do it. I hadn't made any money. The website must not have been good enough. And I went on a job interview and I knew they were going to offer me the job. And it was great job. It was $250,000 a year. It was 10 minute drive from my house. It was a company I'd always wanted to work for. And I got back to the car and I knew they were going to call me and make an offer. And I just like knew in the pit of my stomach, there was no way I could say yes. But I also knew I couldn't pay my bills. So when they called me and offered the job, I said no, but I knew I was burning a bridge there. And that's when I put out the first offer that generated revenue. And that offer is still the program we offer today. So what is now ten dollars to $20,000, when I first offered it back in, I guess it was August of 2013, the first time I offered it, it was $1,000. The idea was in 13 weeks, we'll finish your book. So we'll write your book, we'll set it up to get clients, and we'll get it published in 13 weeks. And it sold out almost immediately. So I had 327 people on my email list, which is not very many. Had a whole bunch of experience, but not necessarily doing exactly this. I wrote one email with this offer that led to about 100 people saying they were interested and 10 people signing up within a week. And that's the program I've been running ever since. How much money did you have left in your account before? No, 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 no money. It was really bad. I had a credit card that had $54,000 in debt on it. Then I had another credit card that had like a $10,000 balance. But I don't know if you remember, this totally freaked me out. I got this letter in the mail from my bank that said, because this credit card I had with a $10,000 balance I hadn't used, they reduced my available credit down to $2,000. So I think that's because I had so much credit on this other card that had $54,000. Like they didn't like seeing that much open credit that wasn't getting paid off. So they actually shrunk my line 
And my bills at the time were $8,000 a month. So between my like mortgage and my expenses, and I had two kids in daycare, and I was a single mom, and I had a car, and I had a nanny. So I had $8,000 a month in expenses. I had no money coming in. My credit cards were basically maxed out. I was really, I had to make something work. So when I put that offer out in August, I did not know how I was going to pay my mortgage that month. I had never not paid my mortgage, but I thought that month would be the first month. And like I said, within a week, I'd made $10,000 and or collected $10,000. I still had to earn it over the next 13 weeks, but that $10,000 was gone. And I started learning, hey, if you're going to generate revenue, you got to make offers and you got to make sure the offers you make, if they're taking up all your time, they got to pay all your bills. So I immediately raised my prices because now I was locked up for 13 weeks, but I only had enough expenses to pay for, you know, four or five of those weeks. I got some business lessons I had never, never expected before right at the beginning, which is basically you must make more money than you spend. For anybody listening who is wondering, what is the path to being a millionaire? The answer is make more money than you spend. The wise words of Angela. Thank you. Yes, exactly. Write it down, people. Appreciate you doing the call here. Yeah. Favorite podcast by far. I love it. Oh, yeah? What is that? So I graduated 2017 from Michigan. I heard that shout out the end of the day. That was pretty cool. Basically, two months after I graduated, I started listening to the podcast. Loved it. I think there were maybe 30 episodes or something out by that point. And I consider myself to be pretty entrepreneurial. Started a business last year. This helped a ton. And it's hard, I think, to find entrepreneurs. I was just looking for entrepreneurial meetups. And I think, wow, this is more of an awesome opportunity to talk with other entrepreneurs. The value is, I mean, it's insane. Like people make these types of entrepreneurial insight things are thousands of dollars. This is 12 per month, but one per month is like nothing. I guess you must have been pretty stoked to get that money in, but there's 324 people that you're saying on the list. Could you go over how you were able to get them originally for the podcast? I don't have any list, right? When I started and I'm just curious on kind of what worked for you. Yeah. So when I started, it was right around my 40th birthday and I turned 40 on March 26th of 2013. And so I had a list of people who I invited to my birthday party. That was my list. <laughs> that was about 200 people on my list. <laughs> so former coworkers, friends, it was not impressive, dude. It was not really impressive. And then I went to some networking events and I would collect business cards. And then as soon as I came home, sometimes even in the hotel, I would put the business cards into LinkedIn. I would type the person's name into LinkedIn. And then if they accepted my connection, on LinkedIn, I would then write back to them. I would send them a message in LinkedIn and ask if I could add them to my list. It was not good, <laughs> but it worked. I guess that grew your list over time. Was there anything else early on that kind of helped you start growing? Everything I did at the beginning was like manual, like personal touch. I would go to a writer. This is what I thought. This is where I thought I would get clients. And I know you're going to think it's brilliant because it sounded so brilliant. And you sound brilliant. I so would, that makes sense. At, right? I would go to writer's workshops and I thought anybody at a writer's workshop is going to want to publish and market their book, right? Why would you be at a writer's workshop if you didn't? So I would spend this money to go to writer's workshops. They'd be like $397, something like that. 
And then I would collect people's business cards and I would follow up with them and I'd be like, oh my God, it was so great to meet you. I loved your book idea about pies. I love pies. And I think it would be great to have a conversation about how I can help you get this published and marketed. People call me back. They would be like, oh my God, she remembers I love pies. She loves pies. And I would just build those personal relationships. But here is this very, very sad news. If you want to know who is never, ever going to publish their book, make a difference and generate a quarter of a million dollars from their book, just look at who is signing up for writer's workshops, because that is the one way I know you for sure are not going to get your book done. People, I discovered, go to writer's workshops, and it's the same reason why people sign up for a lot of business programs and then don't actually start their business. People go to writer's workshops to feel like a writer. But if you're actually going to write your book, market it, and use it to grow your business, you're not going to writer's workshops. And of course, I should have seen that because none of the clients over the 19 years that I had as a ghostwriter or as a book marketer or as a publicist, none of them went to a writer's workshop. They're like, how do I find a consultant to help me get this book out, right? And then they went through their contacts and through a word of mouth process to like find somebody who knew about books and I would always be recommended. So writer's workshops is where people go to not make any money from their books. So if you're thinking about signing up for one, just know it means that the chance of you ever making money from your book is dramatically reduced. But it took me about a year to figure that out. In the process, I had a lot of phone conversations with people I thought would buy from me. And what I actually learned was how to message and market my stuff to get to people who did want to write a book. So when I wrote that email in September of 2013, the first time I started making money, I was like, hey, if you're on this list and you're thinking about writing a book, this email isn't for you. You can close it right now. But if you are 100% committed to releasing your book before New Year's Day, we are going to work together tirelessly. And before the stroke of midnight on 2013, your book will be published and you will go into the new year as a new author. What happened was I figured out this is the messaging I need to find action takers who have a problem that's urgent enough that they're going to invest at least $1,000 in solving this problem and getting it done. And so 10 people out of 327 is a very small number, but I didn't need a big number. I just needed a few people who were really committed. Tire kickers will kick tires until the cows come home. Action takers will give you money right now to get the result they want. You had a good idea, I would think, too, initially, because at least you're hunting down and you're thinking about it. You're not just like randomly shooting in the dark. But I think at the end of the day, people like to dream, obviously, about what they're doing versus it sucks. But eventually you just have to sit down and do something to get it done. You can't just keep thinking about it forever. And hopefully the people listening are hearing these concepts. But also the idea is to eventually like use some of these concepts that you've learned from on the podcast and actually like put them into work. Don't just always just listen, actually do something every once in a while. Yeah, that's that, that's the whole thing. So there's a big difference between passive action and massive action. And the reason I didn't make any money in my business in the first nine months I was around is I was taking a ton of passive action. I was reading, I was signing up for courses, I was studying, I was watching countless videos. I was in so many people's programs and just absorbing all this knowledge and then copying things, using swipe files. And really, when I finally started making money, it wasn't about consuming. It was about the massive action of 
taking the initiative to write an email, get it out into the marketplace, reply to people who wrote back to me, get on the phone with them, and then say the words, here's how much money I will need in order to solve this problem for you. If you're not making offers, you are not taking massive action. I don't care what course you're watching, what logo you're creating, what website you're building. You don't need any of that. You need to get on the phone with prospects and make them an offer. I kind of did a similar thing with the podcast. I think it's good to understand it initially. Like at least you're smart enough to try to look at these courses and everything. But it's just so few people take that transition period so many people just sign up for these courses and never do anything. It's so painful. At least you do something in the beginning and then you start kind of learning. And then once you start getting pushed up against the door about, hey, you need to eventually make money, you've got to actually figure out something. I think that was important for you, it sounds like. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of my biggest advantages in business is that I'm willing to suck. So when I go back and look at that first offer, so $1,000 was the wrong amount of money to charge. I lost about $1,000 per book. That email that I sent is full of typos. It's not well-written. Like the list, I'm going to be totally honest, of those 327 people, there's at least 200 of them that I just put on there without an opt-in. And I did a million things wrong, but by doing them and by being willing to suck and being willing to get yelled at for messing up, And for being willing to put myself out there, that's how I've been able to evolve. So that business that made me $10,000 in 2013 generated $6 million in 2017. How about we talk about the growth along the way? Has it always just been up and going? I guess that first $10,000 in 2013? Yeah, so we did, I think we did $250,000 in 2014. And when we say we, we, do you mind? We. Yeah, it's you. (laughs) Well, it was me in 2014. I had an amazing assistant. Her name was Jessie. She worked with me on a Windows Server backup book. She is now an incredibly successful real estate tycoon in Santa Barbara. So if anybody needs to buy a house in Santa Barbara, look up Jessie Sessions. But she was my right-hand person, my gal Friday, my everything that I didn't do, Jessie did. I used to call her the other half of my brain. So it was just us. Back in 2014, she was with me from 2013 until 2015. Now there's 24 people. So we, back in 2014, when we did 250K, was me and Jesse. I think she was making $1,000 a month helping me. It's pretty bad. And now we've got a payroll of, I don't know, it's over 200,000 a month now, I think. It's a lot of money. I don't know. But yeah, so we've got about 24 now. And the way the team is broken up is we have a business operations team. So we've got three people on that team doing our finance operations and HR. We have a marketing team that's got eight to 10 people on it, building funnels, doing our messaging, doing our websites, social media, all the technology automation. Then we have a publishing team. So we've got about, I don't know, five or six people that are full-time editors for us. And then we have a huge stable of freelancers. So we have editors and designers and project managers in our publishing department. And then in our customer experience department, we have four coaches that work with me. We have two concierges that manage the client experience. And then the head of our customer experience team oversees all of the events, all of our technology platforms how we deliver our online learning, and then how we do our live events. Well, let's talk about year two. What is you and your assistant? 
what worked, what didn't work for someone who's kind of in a similar situation wanting to grow their business and maybe they're a freelancer and they just started off? Sounds like, yeah, obviously you're willing to try a lot of different things. So what actually you think helped you the most? Yeah, I think what helped me the most was not trying different things. <laughs> I know a lot of entrepreneurs have that shiny object syndrome. I do not have that. I was very focused on people who wanted to get their book written in 13 weeks. That was it. Those are the only people I wanted to serve is do you want to get a book written that's going to help you get clients in about 90 days? And if that was not you, there was nothing I was generating or producing or doing that would help you. And I never changed from that focus. So what we did in year two was I thought those programs needed to be quarterly. And I was from a business background, so I thought quarterly. So I did the event four times, or I did the program four times a year. So it was 13 weeks. So we had four programs. And what that meant was I was launching my program about once a quarter. And one of the things I discovered was I was broke every time I would launch. So I'd have a whole bunch of money. I raised my prices. I took more people in the program. And I would generate somewhere between forty dollars and $60,000 for each launch. But by the time I was selling the next launch, I was close to broke. I was in rice and beans territory and the launch had to be successful. So this made my energy really what I call like grabby or chasey. Like I really needed 20 people to sign up because if they didn't sign up, I couldn't pay my bills for the next three months. And if I couldn't take pay my bills, I would end up taking like extra private clients, but then I didn't have any time. And I had two toddlers at the time who were pretty little. They were like four and six, I think. They're 11 and 12 right now. So Maybe they were five and six. Anyway, they were little and they needed my time. And if I needed to make extra money by taking consulting clients, I wasn't going to have that time to do the mom stuff I needed to do. So by the end, so I would say one of the biggest mistakes I made in year two was thinking that each group had to stand on its own. So what the adjustment that I made by the end of my second year was to sign people up the minute they found me. It was still a 13-week program, but it was a 13-week program that started the day you signed up. And there were no exceptions to that. If somebody wasn't willing to go right away, then they weren't ever going to work with me because they weren't a fit. Because if people like delay you, like you've probably seen this with your real estate deals. Like when someone says they're in and they sign the paperwork right away and they're ready to roll, they're going to be an easy client the whole time. If somebody comes back to you and wants to have three or four conversations and they want to redline the document and then they tell you they're going to sign it and they don't sign it, they're going to be a dick for the whole transaction. And I was a single mom. I did not have time for asshole clients that were going to suck up all my time and not get amazing results. So we started staggering the program so that when people signed up, they would immediately start working on their book. And that made all the difference. So in in that first year, we did 250000 By the end of the year, we'd switched so that we were immediately serving people. I started hiring my next couple editors. My first hires were editors so that they could be working on the books at the same time and I could help more people. By the end of year three, which was 2015, we did a million dollars. And then we tripled that to three million the next year and went from like three employees to 10 in that year. And then we doubled again to 6 million. 
and we're up to about 20 employees. And then at the beginning of this year, I think we just hired six people a minute ago. So now we're in whatever year we're in and hopefully we're on target to hit 10 million this year. How about the third year? Tell us about hiring these people. Were you hiring them full time? No, I was hiring people 1099 contracts and I was not thinking about the IRS and I was hiring them after I needed them. So I would like sign up a bunch of clients. I would feel really happy when I closed the sale. And then I would like run to the bathroom and throw up because how the hell was I going to deliver what I just promised them? I was my like main salesperson and I would promise them all this stuff. And then I was like, there's no way for me to do this. That year, the year that we hit a million dollars, I probably pulled more all-nighters than I slept at night. I mean, it was almost an all-nighter every night. I would hire 1099 contractors only because I thought I was going to die. Um, it was just like, wow, there's so much work that's due the next day and I don't know how to do it and who can help me. And I was just scrambling to hire people and I would hire them on a 1099 and I would pay them when the work was done. Then it added the whole task of like chasing them down. Like I didn't have any managers. I was managing everybody. So I had to like chase down their work. I had one guy who said he would work for me, but I had to pay him half up front, which is pretty reasonable if you're a contractor, by the way. So I paid him half up front and I think I was paying him, maybe it was like $2,000 a book and there were 20 books. So I gave him some amount of money, 10 grand or something. He immediately skipped town, went on a drug bender, never turned in the work. The money was gone. It was really bad. <laughs> Those are things not to yeah. do. I think this transition is actually, seems like the hardest is going from a role from like the salesperson, I guess, to trying to bring on other people. To me, that, that's been a difficult transition. Mm -hmm. Just tell us about that. And not just the salesperson. Like I would sell them something. So I would say to you, like, hey, Austin, we're going to get together. We're going to get your book done. It'll be me and you on the phone. And then I would deliver it. And that was pretty easy because I would send you my calendar link and then you and I would get on the phone and then I would tell you what to do that week. And I would be like, email it to me. Here's what I need in chapter two. And I would talk you through chapter two. I would be like, okay, I want you to start with a story of John Smith. And in that story, I need you to encapsulate his biggest fears. So let's talk about what they are. And we talk about it. I'd be like, great. Now I want you in the next section to analyze what happened. And then in the next section, I want you to do this. I'd like talk you through it. I'd record it. I would email you the recording. In that email, I would say, so send me this chapter by Friday at 5 p.m. And then you'd email it back to me and I would read it. <laughs> and then I would comment on it, which is what I've been doing for 20 years. Track changes on, I'd give you all the feedback and I'd send it back to you. Now, all of a sudden, we had so many clients, I couldn't do that. So I would say, okay, here's what's going to happen. I hired somebody who still works for me. She's editing my book right now. Her name is Kate. So I'd say to Kate, here's what's going to happen. Austin's going to email me his chapter this week. What I want you to do is I'll forward it to you and then you read it. Send me all the comments, send it back to me. And then when I get on the phone with him, I'll review your comments with him. And that seemed totally reasonable. Like what could go wrong? Well, Kate's mom got diagnosed with cancer. She has two little kids. One of them got an IEP and she had to like pull them out and homeschool them. Like she was a great editor, but stuff would come up. So then I'd be emailing you and I'd be like, Austin, hey, had a little hold up here. Can we push our meeting off till next week? 
Well, now your 13-week program is 14 weeks and everything gets jammed up. So I didn't know how to manage people. I didn't know how to set goals. When I was doing it, I was just like, oh, I could just hire people to do what I'm doing. That does not work. There is a reason why there are HR experts and there's a reason why there are job descriptions and milestones and ways of measuring success. And it's not just the CEO emails you things and you turn them around. I understood why you started doing the quarter thing, because I think you could at least keep all the books on track each time. And to me, that'd right. be much easier It was versus when you're starting to do this and hiring people on. So obviously, it sounds like you found a system over time, but did you find a system only when you had a few editors that actually started working to keep everything organized and get past this hurdle? For me, the key was finding the right people who would build systems, because I'm not a system builder like most CEOs. I'm a great visionary, but I am not awesome at the details. So my head of publishing right now, Grace, was one of my first employees in that year when we hit a million. She has a lot of experience as an editor and she came in and she's like, hey, I think we should set up the systems this way. And I put together a best practices manual that the other editors can use. And she was doing all these things that weren't strictly 1099 work. It was really like managing workflow, managing best practices, developing systems. And that's when I realized I was highly exposed by having contractors because it wasn't just, hey, can you do this project? Hey, can you make a book cover? It was really developing the intellectual property of the company. And not only did I need to protect that, you know, so the company could grow, but I need to protect it so I didn't go to jail. <laughs> so um, that's when we converted people to W-2 employees. And Grace went from being a freelance editor to our senior managing editor. Now today, she's our publisher. And I've learned the importance of developing a career path for our employees. Sometimes we just hire someone to do a contract project. Maybe we're throwing a party and we just hire someone to plan the party. And that's a great 1099 task. But when you're building a business that you want to outlast you or to be sellable, it's really important to pay more. There's so many accountants and tax people that will tell you do everything 1099, hire cheap labor in the Philippines. Like I'm all in. But if you want to build an actual company and have people working not just on a project, but on how to make the business sustainable, it's actually, I think the key to success is paying people on W-2s, great salaries, where they're not distracted by other clients and they can be fully committed to your mission. And they have a reason to be fully committed to your mission. What did Grace start implementing and what worked for y'all when you started to make people in W-2s and they started taking in more ownership as far as just keeping all these little projects intact? Yeah, so we pretty quickly switched over to using Basecamp. So there are a couple programs, Basecamp, Trello, Asana, but we use Basecamp. And she set up a template for each new author. So the day they started, they got all of their deadlines in the process. What used to be a 13-week process is now nine weeks plus a three-day live event. So we do the last four weeks of content live in three days. But all of those deadlines for the first nine weeks are still the same ones we developed a couple years ago. So that's like there are systems that your team that you can develop that will last for years. 
So we know what each of their assignments are the day it's due. There's a check-in process. So our concierges have a combined list of all the deadlines for all of our clients, and they can check that our clients are meeting the deadlines. Then we developed like standard responses. So if somebody misses a deadline, we have an email that goes out. Eventually, we added a guy named Ben to our team who's our head of automation. And so now if a deadline is missed, we have a little tracker that will identify it's been missed and automatically send that message. So there's a lot less manual work. But really coming up with each project, a template with deadlines and associated standard messaging throughout that process. That's probably the biggest thing that we implemented. There's a bunch of other stuff, but that's the one that made the biggest difference. And in the meantime, as we were developing it, and this is the thing that I really want people to know, we never dropped a ball. We never had somebody not finish their book. We actually have had three people out of 421 not finish their book, but almost everybody has finished well over 99%. And that's because people were just manually doing it. Before we had the processes and before we had them right, we were just chasing people down and doing what it took to make it happen. When uh, Ben set up those, Mr. Head of Automation, set up the like email templates and stuff, what was he using? You mentioned some tools that maybe people might not know about or do know about that kind of help with that transition. As far as like the email stuff and automating more things, did you use any other type of software? Yeah, we use, and I'm like definitely not our head technologist for sure, but we use Zapier. Yeah. And Zapier just sort of connects our various systems so they can talk to each other. So for us, Wufu, Basecamp, Facebook, Kajabi, Infusionsoft, and then we also use Zoom is our video chat platform where we do weekly office hours with me where people can ask personal questions, and then those recordings are posted in our Kajabi group. Yeah, and I use Zapier as well to do a lot of things. I think the key is just trying to automate it one little thing at a time and then kind of grow from there because then it sounds like so much, but it's been over years, obviously, that you've been able to do that, right? Years. Yeah, we did it manually, and then we would find one thing. Like, we are just automating something yesterday. For three years, we've been doing RSVPs for our live events because we need to know how many people are coming so we know how much coffee to brew. And so we've been doing that through Wufu. And that's it. They just have to go on to Wufu and RSVP. We just realized yesterday there was a little automation opportunity where we could automate their travel packet that we send them with like the hotel block code and all their travel information based on their RSVP. And so we just automated this little section that we've been doing manually for three years. Just because somebody called it out, one of our team members, Eleanor, was like, hey, we do this every time. I bet we could talk to Ben and automate this. But we didn't automate everything at once. It was just every time we'd see a piece of the puzzle, something that we were repeating, we'd just automate that one little piece. And now the system's pretty impressive, but most people start by automating before they have hundreds of clients, before they know what's successful, before they actually know what their clients need. So they're automating all the wrong stuff and it's a lot of work. We're automating something we've been doing for three years. We're pretty sure it's the right stuff. I don't want to leave off. I remember there's a point in time when we were talking about you kind of going from that sales role and that you're doing a lot of all-nighters and doing a lot of things, obviously, at that point in time. 
How's your lifestyle kind of changed over the years? And tell us what you do more today versus what you did in the beginning. Yeah, I'd say the biggest thing is to get to a million, you really need to work harder. But to get to 10 million, you have to do a lot less. And that it's easier to work harder. But by a million, what I've realized in talking to other people who've kind of hit that seven figure mark, you can just put in more hours to get there and you will make more money. This all crashes and burns because at some point there's no way to work harder. So my biggest thing has been working less. So I, I take off every Friday and I take off one day, uh, one week a month. So I work Monday to Thursday, three weeks of the month. And it's so hard for me. I would much rather work 100 hours a week. But if you're not really empowering a team, if I get in the weeds, nothing gets done. I'm the bottleneck for everything. So there are lots of things in my business I don't know how to do anymore. Like literally, if there was a gun to my kid's head, I would not know how to connect a zap to Infusionsoft. But in the beginning, I was using MailChimp and I did all of the email coding myself. I did all the HTML. I built my website. I sent out every email. Jesse did it, some of it for me, my assistant Jesse Sessions. But I did like everything myself and it was great. But now I need to not only not do it, I need to not even know how to do it. So I have redundancy built in my organization. So at least two people know how to do everything we do but I'm not one of those two people in most cases. There are still a couple places where I have the redundancy, but my goal is to, for me to not be required for the business to run. It's really hard for me to not work. So I have found the key to this, this is gonna sound really weird, but the key to this is vacations and vacations where it's very difficult to be online. So I've taken a lot of cruises. I'm going to Club Med for my week off in March. It's like my third time to a Club Med. Anything where I can turn Wi-Fi off and not be working is going to empower my team to step up into their role. They don't have a choice. We went to a castle in Scotland where there was no Wi-Fi. We were like in the hinterlands in Scotland. And I just watched my team grow and blossom because I wasn't there to ask questions to. And they had to be the leaders that they already are. It's just hard to be when I'm chiming in on every fucking comma. Yeah, that is understood. Cause I think that's the hardest part is like you helped grow it, obviously. Like I would have to do the same thing. I would have to go somewhere where it's not possible to get online. So you can't work. So therefore you don't have to worry about it or versus if you were some. That's the answer. Yeah. I'm going on a safari with Richard Branson in November to his safari park. Yeah, me too. And are you really? No, I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> I'm like, you should come. It's going to be amazing. So we we're supposed to go to Necker Island, but the island is not faring well after the hurricane. So safari it is. I have a trip to the Bahamas planned. I have a trip to Malta for a week. I'm in a friend's wedding and I like have the whole week off. So yeah, so that is one week out of every month. I have planned to do something that it would either be impossible or rude to be working. And then on Fridays, I do a lot more self-care than I ever did. So I do things like float tanks, IV infusions, massages and spa time, a lot of detoxing. And really that's to keep myself strong for the team and for our clients. I really do think of it as an act of service. It sounds sort of obnoxious, but it's really not because if I am burnt out, there's no business. I am definitely the one that, you know, is the 
reason the business flows. And so I have to keep myself strong and healthy. So I would say like self-care has become such a much bigger priority. I don't think I've done an all-nighter. I still probably do one or two a year, but I'm like eight hours of sleep, no sugar, no flour, regular exercise, lots of vitamins. I'm actually, I'm just adding chiropractic to my regular routine. So Dr. Stephanie Estima is a chiropractor in Toronto who I spend a lot of time with in some entrepreneurial circles. And she has convinced me the time has come. She's like, there is a rounding in your spine from the amount of time you spend at your desk. So all of those investments in myself have paid back at a 10x return on investment because when I show up, I'm not an asshole. Remember you said one thing that I took note of is hiring two people like to do every job. Can you expand upon that? I try to do a similar thing with uh, audio editors or whoever, like at least if one person's out, because I've learned it was just one person that does that one job and I'm not kind of cross training them that, yeah, if they're out of town or whatever, then everything gets kind of clogged up and then everything gets backed up. Did you find that out the hard way too? Yeah. And I think that's the thing is like, usually people have really good reasons. Like I mentioned when Kate's kids needed her, or her mom needed her, like they have very good reasons, but it's not their business. It's not their name. They weren't the one on the sales call. Like, I don't know if you're getting sponsors for this, but if you charge somebody a couple thousand dollars to be a sponsor, and then it doesn't come out when you said it was, they do not care that your editor had, you know, their mom was sick. It just doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. So you have to find a way to get stuff done. So it's much more expensive. But one of my, I think my biggest hacks in being able to build my team is I hire in pairs. So we will hire two people for every role. And when we hire those two people, there are a bunch of scenarios. It's possible neither of them will work out. That doesn't usually happen. It's possible one will work out. And we usually know that within about 90 days. And then it's possible both will work out, but we don't have enough room for both people in the same role. But I can usually tell if the both people are amazing, another job is going to be coming up around that time anyway. Within three months, they're cross-trained on their job. And we have two people doing it. So they get to like watch each other and help each other and sort of develop their own best practices together. And then at that 90-day mark, if both people are awesome, there's a new role that's opened up in the organization. And I just move one person into a better seat for them. So as an example, we had two people that we brought on as kind of personal assistants. And it turned out one of them was amazing at AV. So amazing at video, video editing, sound, equipment, rolling up cords, picking the right things to buy, buying cameras, downloading memory cards, like a million things. I didn't have a job on my team that was like an AV specialist, but immediately in those 90 days, I could see like he wasn't amazing at details and like really tight deadlines like the other person was. And this particular job had a lot of detailed deadlines, processes, but he was amazing at AV. So I was able to create a role and really understand the ROI of having him on the team. So I think he's been here a year and he's gotten two raises and he's doing what he's awesome at. And I didn't even know I had that role, but it makes my life so much better. It makes my program so much better. 
And then meanwhile, the other person is cross-trained. So the other person's in that sort of more project manager role, but she knows how to do the AV stuff and he knows how to do the project management stuff. So if they go on vacation or whatever, they can cover for each other. And one other thing I remember, you were talking about entrepreneurial circles. Can you tell us about how you started getting into those, how they've helped you over time? Yeah, I think, what's that? You're the average of the five people you hang out with. Yeah, I say 69, Um, but whatever. Yeah. Well, when I first heard that, I looked at who I was hanging out with, and I was hanging out with a lot of life coaches that I loved, just like amazing people. And when I would hang out with them, they would ask me for business advice. And they would sit at my feet and look up into my eyes and tell me how smart I was and how amazing I was. And then they would not do anything I suggested. And at some point when I was making some money, but not really enough to pay my bills, I was like having a whole bunch of sycophants who think I'm brilliant, but don't do what I say and don't have any ideas for me is not working out for me. Like, why am I giving all this free advice? Nobody takes it. There's no upside for anyone. I just decided that I was going to be committed to spending at least an hour a week where I was the dumbest person in the room. So I knew nothing about real estate investing. And I found a group of real estate investors that had all done a bunch of real estate. And I would go to their weekly meetings and bought my first piece of property and learned a whole bunch about real estate investing. And I still don't know a lot, but I was the dumbest person in the room. You know, I did that in several areas. So I'm in a group called The Collective, which is all seven and eight figure female entrepreneurs. Really interesting for me because a lot of times I hang out with guys. So I love seeing what they're, they're much wiser about, I don't know, girly things that I know nothing about. And so, but then I love being in groups, like I'm in a group called War Room, which is Ryan Dice and Frank Kern and Roland Frazier's group, which is mostly internet marketing, dude bros. And I love being in that world and knowing like the fine tuning of a funnel, even though our funnels are not very fine tuned and I make more money than most of them. But they still know a lot more about direct response marketing and copywriting and and being able to hang out with them is really cool too. I think that's smart, obviously, just get around those people. And you can learn anything from those groups. Even if you just, in the real estate group, I'm sure there's points that you could have pulled out from there to help you with the author incubator. Right. I think that's pretty wise. If you had a suggestion for any young entrepreneurs, would you suggest that they get involved with a particular group in general? Is there one specifically Um, that you can think of? Yeah, what I love, I'm going to make a very specific recommendation. And what I love about this group is they have all levels. So from just beginner entrepreneur all the way up to a seven or eight figure business. And that group is called Archangel. So at the entry level, the Archangel Summit and Archangel Labs, and I think their website is Archangel Academy. It's run by a guy named Giovanni Marsico, who is in Toronto. And Archangel Labs and Archangel Academy are entry level, mission-driven entrepreneurs who are just starting their business. So motivation, tools, tactics, techniques. Then we have the Archangel Masters Group, which is people who are at $500,000 and up, and they are really doing their magic. And it's much more practical implementation techniques, scaling and optimizing and things like that. And then they have the Archangel Council, which are 12 people that are closer to that eight-figure mark and that are really funding other projects and helping to train the people at at the entry level. 
So I'm involved in all of those groups. So I go to the Archangel Summit every year. I participate in the master's group and then I'm also on the council. And so I feel like wherever you are, if I was going to recommend one group, it would definitely be Archangel and Giovanni Marcico's community, especially if you're a mission-driven entrepreneur, if you want to make a difference, if you have a social mission beyond just making money. Although there's a lot of people that are just making a lot of money. So yeah. All right. What do you think is going to happen in the future with Author Incubator? What I'm really most excited about right now is we are building an institute. It's a facility with a large campus where not only can we train authors, but our authors can train other people in their areas of expertise. So we are um, building an actual school for authors to train people in their expertise. And then we'll fill that with people that we actually do the marketing for and bring in authors that we know are brilliant to do those trainings. So we're right now, we're doing the early stages of the search, but we should break ground this year. And we're going to launch that with our documentary film that is coming out and really talking about how people actually make a difference, what it looks like, the kind of raw struggle that goes into building a movement. I guess if you wanted to leave the entrepreneurs or anyone listening with one thought based on our conversation, what would that be as far as helping them get started in their own business? Yeah, I have this one piece of advice that I have been giving for about 30 years now. I don't know, 20 years now. 10 years. Yeah, five. Yeah, like 10, <laughs> exactly, because I'm 29. So, so yes, yeah, so, and that is the more you do, the more you do. And the more you like, think about things and try and figure things out. All of that leads to inertia, but inertia works both ways. So just take action because it's going to lead to more action, which is going to lead to smarter action, which will lead to better action. But stop trying to figure shit out. You don't need to figure anything out. You are not confused. Whatever you do know today Take action on today. If you know you want to do a podcast today, you know what day you should launch your podcast? Fucking today. Cut the bullshit. You want to write a book? You know how long it takes? It takes three days. Go rent a hotel room and go write your fucking book. Like there is no reason not to do what you know how to do today because you might know more tomorrow. I promise you I will know more tomorrow. But I'm not going to keep waiting because what happens is you never get there. And I watch so many people struggling, waiting until they have it all figured out. You're for sure not going to have it all figured out. Do it anyway. Be willing to suck. The more you do, the more you do. It's really insightful. So as soon as you said you were setting up the Patreon, it was just like, yeah, I'll help this guy. You know, I take a lot of value from it. You know, it's as simple as that. Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Well, I was going to say, have you checked out our newest Patreon episode? Yeah, I was just like, oh, well, I'm in the car. I'll just listen to it, whatever. But I'm not getting anything out of this. And then you're like, wow, I'm not that naive or anything, but it really did open your eyes. Wise words of Miss Angela. Thank you. If someone wanted to go ahead and reach out and say thank you for doing the interview or connect with you in another way, what's the best way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, the best way to find me is at theauthorincubator.com. So it's T-H-E, the or the authorincubator.com. 
And then if you go to the library on my site, there are three free books available there. The Difference, 10 Steps to Writing a Book That Matters, The Incubated Author, 10 Steps to Start a Movement That Makes a Difference, and my book, Make Them Beg to Publish Your Book, coming soon in the next 60 days or so, so probably when people are listening to this podcast, my newest book, Make Them Beg to Be Your Client, will be launched. So if you register for my free books, then you will also get my newest book, Make Them Beg to Be Your Client. There you go. We appreciate you coming on and doing the podcast. I think there are a lot of wise words, especially what you're saying at the end. The main thing is actually just doing something and not dreaming about it. Take some proactiveness and actually do something and stop thinking. Nothing's going to ever be perfect when you actually come out with it, the website, whatever. It's for sure not going to be perfect. And no matter what, even if you spend $100,000 and 100,000 hours, it's still not going to be perfect. So you might as well just do it with 10 hours and, you know, $10. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, well, thank you again, Angela, for coming on and doing the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me, Austin. If you liked this episode, here's a few other service-based interviews to tickle your fancy. Episode 62 with Andrew Sykes of Habits at Work. Episode 64 with Carl Meyer of Abundant. Or episode 68 with John Sharp of Staff Source. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode. So don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones.